0: As we try to get the projector back on, um, if you haven't bought your dad a Father's Day present, promise I won't tell him. Uh, But here's one, I've got one for you. It can just be between us. Uh, This is a book called Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity by Ben Shaw. Uh, I thought this was apt because he wrote it for his father. Uh, Ben is a, a great communicator who... Points you to Jesus and brings you the gospel in a really fresh and engaging way. Um, he uh, was a great writer and communicator and minister of the gospel. And just before this was published, he died and now inherited all things as he saw Jesus face to face, as we've just sung. So give thanks for Ben Shaw. Take a copy of this book. Give it to your dad. Give it to someone else. There's two copies up the back. If That's not enough, I've got some more hidden around the place, so come and see me if you've missed out and I'll get one into your hand tonight. Uh, While we think about Father's Day, we're back, nice job Henry, Um, I'm going to pray for Father's Day in light of Father's Day before we jump into the Bible together, praying a prayer written by our friend the Dean of Sydney, Sydney, Sandy Grant, Um, let's pray together. Almighty and ever-living God, on this Father's Day we know that all earthly fatherhood takes its name from you. So we thank you for setting us in families, for the joy that so often brings. We thank you for the fathers who have provided and protected, guided and disciplined and in so many other ways loved and cared for us for our good. Many of us also thank you for spiritual fathers in the faith, for those who first brought the gospel to us. We pray for fathers to have willingness to encourage their children, strength to discipline, tenderness to love, wisdom in teaching, integrity in example. We pray for those unable to be fathers, for those without their father because of death or distance, for those whose fathers have not been all that you intended for them. Thank you that you reveal yourself in the Bible as the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows, that you promise to set the lonely in families. So be the strength of all such people in their time of need. We thank you that through faith in Christ, we are your children by adoption We thank you for the eternal security and significance that that gives us. We thank you that the Holy Spirit enables us to call you our Father in heaven. Help us always to rejoice in that privilege, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, Genesis 29, and um, this is our kind of odyssey at the moment, going through the book of Genesis, the origin story of all things and of God's people of promise. And Lord willing, around this time in 2024, we'll be coming to the end of Genesis 50. We're going to have about a year's break in the middle there. But um, there's a little teaser, a little hook to say, keep coming, keep being hungry for God's word. And here's a little spoiler if that's okay, that at the end of chapter 50 we read these key verses that come from the mouth of one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, the guy with the the colourful coat. Joseph says this at the very end of the book of Genesis, words that we've already sung together tonight. You intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended it for evil, God intended it for good. And the question is, how far back does that verse reach? Because it clearly goes back to chapter 37. But I wonder actually, as we continue to look at this origin story of the people of God, whether that verse actually casts its shadow a lot further back. It's kind of the repeated theme of this book, isn't it? That in the midst of chaos and even evil, things that people have done for the harm of others and ultimately for themselves, God works for his glory and for their good. Time and time and time again, in the midst of challenge and conflict and what look to be insurmountable obstacles, God works His good purposes for the salvation of His people. And that's true back here in chapter 29 tonight as well. More ongoing challenge, more conflict, more obstacle, God taking evil and turning it for His good purposes and the salvation of His people. He does it as He reverses fortunes, as he upends culture and tradition, as he takes unexpected people from the margins of society and culture and he moves them for his plan and his promises. And one aspect of God's work that should give us patience and perseverance is seeing how much more often than not God seems more interested informing people in their faith for his eternal purposes rather than fixing people in their temporal circumstances. He wants to form people for his eternal purposes, not fix people for their temporal circumstances. Do you see the difference? God, From God's perspective, there's a lot more fruit, lasting fruit, in people being formed as they have to work through things, trusting in Him as He providentially cares and provides, rather than simply giving immediate solutions that may bring temporary comfort and immediate resolution, but don't do actually anything for forming someone's faith for the long haul. And isn't it a great joy that we get to kind of sit back with the wide lens... Of salvation history, to see the full story, to see thousands and thousands of years of God making and keeping promises of doing weird and wonderful things in the the lives of weird and wonderful people, shaping and forming them to trust Him for His eternal purposes, rather than just their temporal circumstances. We get so caught up, don't we, in our immediate temporal circumstances. And we want comfort, we want resolution. But here's the perspective. God is much more interested in your long-term trust in his eternal purposes than your immediate comfort and resolution. Which means the Christian life's going to be harder more often than not. and it's about working through things as you trust in God, with great patience and great confidence that He is the God of all faithfulness and that our trust is very well placed in Him and His good and sovereign hands. Um, About a month ago, I was sick again. It's been a bit of a, a theme for me this year, a lot of sickness and a lot of Isolation, a lot of frustration with my body and with a broken world and a limited capacity uh, and really needing patience. And uh, Jocelyn and I were reading a book together and this was a quote that really stopped me in my tracks and actually lifted me out of my tracks to help me forget about the temporal circumstances and to fix my eyes on God's eternal purposes. It's a long quote, stay with me. It's from Paul Tripp in a book called Lead. He says this, how could we not be blown away by God's patience as we matriculate our way through the grand redemptive story? How could we not be amazed by thousands of years between the fall in Eden and the victory of the empty tomb? How could we not notice God's willingness to send prophet after prophet after prophet with essentially the same warning and the same welcome? How could we not take notice of the amazing patience of Jesus with his disciples or with the dysfunctional churches of the epistles? How could we not be comforted by the fact that in patience, God's judgment still waits while his mercy works. How could we miss the fact that our daily hope is connected to our Saviour's patient grace? Both the meta-story of the Bible and our individual stories are portraits of an ever-faithful and patient Redeemer. There would be no kingdom of God, no church of Jesus Christ, no people of God, no population in the new heaven and the new earth, if it were not for the infinite patience of the Lord. God is patient in love, in judgment, in sovereignty, wisdom, power and mercy. He is willing to do the same thing in you and for you again and again and again until it takes root and flourishes. He is willing to say the same thing to you over and over again until you hear it and you live it. He greets your weakness with patience, not with disgust. He responds to your wanderings with patience and rescuing grace, not with condemnation. He patiently picks you up when you fall. He patiently dresses your self-inflicted wounds. He patiently stands in your way when you want your own way. And he never tires of you. He never turns his back on you and walks away. He patiently gives himself to the work that he has begun in you and he will patiently continue until his work is done. His work is a process, it is not an event Redemption is longevity work. Redemption is legacy work. Redemption takes patience. And the God of all faithfulness has it in spades. And that's good news for us and it's good news for Jacob and it's good news for the purposes of God's kingdom in the world that we see fulfilled in the Lord Jesus And what we have on display in chapter 29 is the patience of God working slowly (laughs) through a weird and wonderful bloke and a weird and wonderful family for his good and sovereign purposes of salvation and of judgment. If you remember last week we had this kind of high point where you think finally Jacob gets it. he met with God in person, he's confronted with the awesome presence of the powerful Lord himself and he declares that God is awesome in the true sense of the word and he worships and he prays and at the start of chapter 29 he moves on in his journey and scholars point out that the first words in in verse 1 say that he has a He lifted up his feet. He has a spring in his step, as you would, having met with God in person in chapter 28. He has a spring in his step and his journey continues and yet we have this, our spider sense is tingling because we know from verse 1 that he's still moving eastward. And any time in the book of Genesis that God's people have moved east, it's not good news East is away from God and away from the garden. East is the direction of greed and godlessness and vainglory, as Bruce Wolke writes. And that's definitely the case because the God who is with him always and the God who was awesome in chapter 28 all of a sudden vanishes in chapter 29 as Jacob totally ignores and leaves God out of the picture. He doesn't even rate a cursory mention, let alone thanks and worship, in this chapter. Jacob is living, having had this great experience, he continues his journey as a functional atheist. The closest connection to God that we hear from Jacob is that he is searching for peace. He inquires after Laban, his uncle. He says, Is he well? Does he have shalom? Am I coming into a family situation of peace? I need peace. He's already said that he's longing for peace. He's hopeful of returning in peace to his father's household. And we're given the good news in verse 6. Yes, there's peace. Laban has shalom in his household that Jacob is about to wreck. It's Jacob's presence that will break the shalom, that disturbs the peace and brings family strife as more jealousy, more discord, more dysfunction and more deception enters into the frame. Lots of writers have pulled together in their analysis the fact that this picture of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac and people of promise all through the Bible arriving at wells at significant moments in redemptive history. That wells have a very physical kind of provision of life and flourishing as well as a very helpful metaphorical picture of life and flourishing. And so it's a well-worn path and it's a well-told story of Jacob arriving at the well for this key meeting with his bride-to-be. And we're wondering about the future shalom of this family and the peace and the life that might come from their children. And the scholars point us to the fact that we see this repeated time and time and time again down through the centuries and it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. When he stands in John chapter 4, where? Where? At Jacob's well in John chapter 4 Jesus stands at Jacob's well inviting a Samaritan woman from a broken marriage to belong to his people of promise to be his bride it's a picture of love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be it's the love story of redemption and we have that on display in chapter 29 As readers we feel how closely this chapter is connected to chapter 24 and the story of Jacob's mother. But Jacob has journeyed not with purpose but with fear and anxiety, he's running away remember. And remember in the the story of chapter 24 and following where um, uh, Isaac's caravan (laughs) arrived to find Rebekah and they brought like truckloads of donkeys and camels and Amazing amounts of jewellery and things for the bride price to bring Rebecca into the family of promise. Jacob turns up at the well, having run away in fear and anxiety. He shows up with nothing. It's just him. What does he have? He has his muscles. Remember, Jacob is the homebody. He's the mama's boy who stayed home and didn't go fighting and hunting and, and... out in the wilderness with his brother Esau. And so you get this picture of, oh, he's, you know, watching Netflix. All he's working out is his thumbs as he plays on his Xbox. He's the homebody. Mum, make me a sandwich. I don't think so, right? Jacob turns up and this guy is, is stacked There's a whole crew at the well, they're like, guys, we've got to wait, we need more people to lift this stone and to feed the sheep and there's a whole team of us and Jacob's like, I got it, I'll do it on my own. He brings his muscle and it's going to be his work, his labour, his muscle that provides for the bride price rather than his family's resources. And so he meets Rachel and there is this heightened emotion and we're meant to kind of be brought into the emotion of this impending love story that they're weeping and kissing from the get go. Why? I think because maybe this is the first news the family's received since they sent Rebecca some decades before. The family's okay, sort of. But here is the news here is the reunion, here is the future. Our family is okay. And so, we're brought into the emotion of this scene with lots of tears and lots of kissing as we're about to see this love story unfold. Okay, so we're we're done with the intro. That's our introduction. Now, this is the sermon. This is what I want you to see. From the rest of this chapter, from verse 15 onwards, I want you to see that Jacob, this is what one writer said this week that's really stuck with me, Jacob continues to be a piece of work, but he's also a work in progress. And I I love that as a picture of the Christian life, that we're all pieces of work, and we're all works in progress. Jacob, this piece of work, and a work in progress, we see God at work, even when he's not mentioned or acknowledged, we see God at work, through devotion, deception and discipline. We see it first in devotion, as Jacob arrives and then stays with Laban and after a month, Laban's like, okay man, what what do you want for your wages? I should be paying you something. And Jacob says, I'm going to keep working like a, you know, like a mule, the strength of ten men. I'm going to keep working but the price, the wage is your daughter's hand in marriage. You can work seven years and then marry Rachel. Good deal, says Jacob. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel and here, this is lovely, they seemed like only a few days. Because of his love for her. Isn't that a beautiful picture of love? Until we get to verse 21, that just all that goes out the window. Because after that seven years, it turns out that Jacob's love for Rachel, while having some kind of Hollywood romanticism to it, in the end was just driven by his appetites for sex. Just as his father's deception was the result of his appetites of his stomach, Jacob's going to fall into another episode of deception because he's driven by the appetites of his body. It's there in verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed, I want to make love to her. Our translators have smoothed that over and made it sound really lovely. Here's the, It's not funny, it's not a funny thing, here's the awkward thing, Robert Alter, a scholar says, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Jewish scholars didn't know what to do with this verse. It was—it It is so crass, it is so sexual, that they don't know what to do. It's inappropriate and over the top. He doesn't say, hooray, our wedding day is here, he says, give me, give me my wife, I want to have sex with her, which is not a good speech at a wedding. And what you see here is what happens all too often in our world, Jacob has made life in the service of sex, rather than sex in the service of God. He's taken the good gift that God has given for our good and God's glory, but here's a picture of leaving the giver out of the picture. You take God's gift, you leave God out, what happens to the gift when you leave the giver out? It gets distorted, it gets twisted, it gets disoriented. And the gift, even of sex and marriage, as good as it is, is not meant to carry the weight of ultimate fulfilment that Jacob loads it up with and that we so often load it up with. Can sex and marriage carry the weight of fulfilment, satisfaction, identity, ultimate meaning, ultimate happiness in this life? Ask anyone with a porn addiction, no, it most certainly cannot. Do not make life in the service of sex but leave sex for the service of God within marriage of one man and one woman for life. Someone said to me before the service this morning as they were getting ready to read chapter 29 this feels a lot like the objectification of women it totally is. On the part of Jacob, give me my wife, I want sex. On the part of Laban, who doesn't prostitute his daughters out, but he treats them like cattle. And it's not a picture of flourishing, it's not a picture of health, it's not a picture of that wonderful picture of Genesis, 20, of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that in God's image, God made them male and female, to be given to one another in marriage for a one flesh union that glorifies God and produces human flourishing and fruitfulness. And we distort it and we disorder it and our lives are crushed under the weight, thinking that somehow these relationships and these appetites can bear the weight of ultimate fulfilment, satisfaction, identity, meaning and happiness and it just cannot do it. That's what Jacob's being driven by. Devotion, question mark. But also deception. Have a look at verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast but when evening came he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her, and Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. Weirdest verse going around. So many questions. So many questions, so few answers. It's a picture of the cover of darkness, and the cover of wedding veils, and maybe too much alcohol involved. It's a picture of deception, that's for sure. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. And here's why I think Jacob doesn't punch him in the face or worse. I think that as Laban says that, it's not our custom to give the younger before the older. Jacob's like, yeah, that's what I did. I think he feels the sting that Laban has done to him exactly what he has done to his father. Under the cover of blindness, veiled in his brother's clothes, he went and deceived his father as the younger grasp at the older. Here, under the cover of darkness and the veil of the wedding... The older is brought in instead of the younger. And I wonder if God is allowing Jacob to experience the deception that he perpetrated, that he might know how it feels, that he might have to walk in that trajectory through that path and work through those issues and experience that pain and how the deception eats him up from the inside out. That like God so often does, he lets you experience the consequence of your actions, not because he's vindictive or cruel, but because he's forming you He's forming you for faith in his eternal purposes more than he's wanting to fix your temporal circumstances and bring you comfort and ease. Philip Kern at Moore College writes in his book on Jacob, he says, sin doesn't pursue Jacob, but God does. Listen to Philip, this is what he says, said, so, Jacob can run from Esau but distance can't separate him from his sin. Sin has an advertised price. The actual cost is always higher. At the same time, the story, because it doesn't teach impersonal cause and effect, it still offers hope that there is a positive side to Jacob's pain because sin doesn't pursue Jacob. God does. God simultaneously opposes Jacob and blesses him. And it's through the good and the bad, and without even a passing mention since Bethel, the Lord himself works out his purposes in Jacob's life. Even through this deception, again, intended for evil, worked for good, to accomplish God's purposes, the salvation of many lives and the moving forward of his sovereign promises. It happens through devotion, it happens through deception, and it happens through discipline, as Jacob has to remain and experience the consequences of his actions for another seven years. Working that slow, redeeming work, being reminded time and time again of what he did as well as what is done to him. Have a look at verse 28. We're nearly finished. So Jacob agreed, finished his week with Leah, and then Laban Laban gave his daughter, him his daughter Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Next week we're going to keep seeing how this dysfunctional family continues and how Jacob's love for Rachel being greater than his love for Leah then creates more conflict, more obstacles, more opportunity for God's sovereign grace to be at work. Leah is the person in this story, I think, that we're meant to feel for. For whatever reason, it's, she's described as being weak in the eyes. No one knows what that means, whether she had bad eyesight or whether she wasn't very nice to look at. Whatever it means, Leah was the girl that nobody wanted. And she was used every bit as much as Jacob was deceived. But hear this again from Philip Kern. God won't overlook Leah. Through her fourth-born son, through Judah, born before slave girls, before mandrakes colour the story, got to come back for that, the line of promise advances. Before we finish, we will see that God elects the first wife, the older sister, obtained through extraordinary circumstances, along with her fourth son, Judah. From the despised and the rejected will come a king. That king himself will be despised and rejected. And thousands of years later, that king would stand at Jacob's well and he would say to the woman that nobody wanted, to the one who's had five husbands and who lives with a jerk and who's discarded from the community, the girl nobody wants, this king, the Lion of Judah, would say to her, you've experienced frustration and disappointment and dissatisfaction, you know that sex and marriage can't bear the weight of all those expectations. You can't find happiness and fulfilment. Jesus says, I can satisfy. I can bless. I can redeem and I can fulfill your life's longings in redeeming love, so drink deeply from the living water that will overflow into eternal life. How could we miss the fact that our daily hope is connected to our Saviour's patient grace? Both the meta-story of the entire Bible and our individual stories are portraits of an ever-faithful and patient Redeemer. He greets your weakness with patience, not disgust. He responds to your wanderings with the patience of rescuing grace and not with condemnation. He patiently picks you up when you fall. He patiently dresses your self-inflicted wounds. He patiently stands in your way when you want your own way. He never tires of you. He never turns his back on you and walks away. His work is a process. It's not an event. Redemption is longevity work. Redemption is legacy work. Redemption takes patience. So let's keep trusting him together. Amen.